Today's reading is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 20. It can be found on page 920 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we sit in these folding chairs and look to have a time in which we, um, we bring some of the real concerns of our lives before you and in the midst of others, we come from different places, we come from different experiences, we, um, our stories are filled with the beauty that you've put in our lives and in this world. And also the, the fragmentation, uh, the imperfection, and the disorder of our lives. And we sit with this, uh, coming with, with some with faith and others with great doubt, some with celebration, others with uh, frustration and loss. And uh, we come to you, all of us, to some degree or another, have opened the door to you speaking into, into the realities of our lives. And so I ask that um, as we sit here more broken than we want others to know, more broken perhaps than we've been willing to admit to ourselves or to our family members or spouses, you know all of it. 
And you say to us through this story that in, in your son and through his work and his record, we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. That in Christ, we have become the beloved children, as the Bible says, unnaturally born, adopted, fully purchased into the family based on nothing we have done. And may we sit with the joyful reality that, you know, as we confessed our sins earlier, that we, we are broken and we are, our, our devotion is flawed and yet you anoint our heads with oil and our cup overflows through Jesus. Would you do that kind of blessing work now through these words? Amen. The question of the week last week was, we didn't get a lot of answers, but uh, it was, what's an action verb you'd like on your tombstone or written in your obituary? And somebody said, drawing. Somebody said, love. And somebody said, I'll give you an action phrase. He existed. Every so often, he truly lived. And that got me kind of looking around for humorous uh, tombstone epitaphs. Is that how you say it? Epitaph? Epitaph? Um, Anyway, I was looking around, and there's, uh, you know, there's kind of run-of-the-mill ones that are, I don't know if it's a famous person or not, I don't even know if they're all real, you know, it's a lot of stuff online, you, you know, it feels kind of made up. Um, like the widow, it says, who wrote this in a Vermont cemetery on, on, her, on her tombstone, sacred to the memory of my husband, John Barnes, who died January 3, 1803. His comely young widow, age 23, has many qualifications of a good wife and yearns to be comforted. <laughs> See, I think that, that feels a little fake to me. Uh, another one in, in Vermont. Um, Here lies the body of our Anna, done to death by a banana. It wasn't the fruit that laid her low, but the skin of the thing that made her go. I think that's fake. Um, and, and that seems to be what's out there in terms of... Uh, here li- you know, here's one um, from Maryland, supposedly. Uh, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Um, here lies Johnny Yeast, pardon me for not rising, in Rudoso, New Mexico. And there's some, there's some real ones that are uh, from famous people's tombstones, like Rod- Rodney Dangerfield, if I can say it correctly, his, the simple phrase at the bottom of his tombstone, now there goes the neighborhood. Um, uh, Frank Sinatra said, the best is yet to come. On Alexander the Great, supposedly it says, um, I didn't fact check all of these, but it says, a tomb now suffices for him for whom the world was not enough. And Winston Churchill it was, was such a wordsmith and, and so witty about how he, uh, all his little catchy phrases he had in his life. He says, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the, the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. <laughs> love that kind of stuff. I, I, do, I do love the idea that, um, I, I love the idea of there's people who can bring their humor all the way, you know, to the grave. They can bring it to, um, to the end of life. Um, and with Jesus, we have in this passage his final words to his disciples 
according to the Gospel of Matthew. And it does have this, it's really brief, it's really simple and pithy, almost like something you would put on a tombstone. It's very simple. Uh, Christians have talked about this in our era. They've called it the Great Commission. And that's what the title is over top of the last few verses in the Bible's By Your Chairs. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. Um, that's something that long ago, growing up in, in the church world and around Christians throughout my college and seminary years, that at some point I memorized. And it, and it hasn't been very hard to keep that memorized because it comes up so often and it's so short. And it's simple. Um, one commentator named Michael Green, and I think this is in your worship guide, this quote, where he says it this way, how true it is, and it is the concluding theme of all four Gospels. The baton has been passed from the Master to the disciples. The power of the risen Christ is available for those disciples. The commandment of the risen Christ is given for those disciples. They must go and make disciples. In a way, that sounds really simple, and yet, if you know the context within which those initial disciples went to, to make disciples... That simple going and making disciples is very complex. It has to get worked out and teased out and fleshed out because they were going into a very unreceptive world. They were going with the message of resurrection into a, a Jewish, first of all, a Jewish community that, that believed resurrection happened as a big thing for all people and creatures at the end of time. They had no framework for the idea of one resurrecting from the dead. And they went out with that kind of... Everything was unreceptive towards what they believed. They went out into... This, this movement was to go out to all nations, into a, a Roman world, with the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and they would say, He's Lord. And these were phrases, and these were things that you said about Caesar. These were things that got you in trouble if you said about someone else, and yet these were central to who this community was. As soon as they became disciples, and as soon as other people came into the, the mix and got sort of caught by the grace and the love of God, um, immediately they were faced as they turned out towards the world to go, you know, a simple command, just go now and make more. They're met with an unreceptive world. And I think we can relate. I think that it's, in fact, you probably thought, oh, they had it easy, you know, compared to our world. They didn't, but that's kind of how we think when, we, when, if you find yourself to be a Christian or exploring faith in Christianity, you know the context within which you're going to have that faith. You know the unre- unreceptivity levels all around you for those exact same things. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to go make disciples very unreceptive world. In fact, this whole, this whole simple teaching of go, make disciples, that in itself violates some of the central social norms that we've all bought into. Leave everyone to their own path. Don't assume they need to come from theirs over to yours. And whatever you do, don't ever let it feel like you have 
taken some of that conversation and brought it over into this kind of conversation. One about faith, about your faith, about the direction of your faith. And there's some, there's some real, I mean, there's just some absolute hard work involved in obeying or listening to this text. Go and make disciples. It's not an issue of whether that command stands before it. It's how on earth do you envision carrying it out? And so, um, you know, we can feel really left alone in this, but I think in this passage, it's also clear that we have uh, some things that can shape our fleshing out. They can shape our journey of figuring this out together. So let's just keep it to two things. I have more, but let's keep it to two. Because there's a lot in this passage, as short as it is, but there's, there's a couple of things that shape our figuring out of going. And that is the legacy of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. Let's, let's think about those two things. How does the legacy of Jesus shape how we go? How does it shape our going? In some ways you could say, wow, that wasn't fair of Jesus because, um, look, the, the whole story here apparently just kind of ends and he gives them this mandate and these instructions that are too simple to really flesh out into actual game plans and then he's gone, you know? Um, Matthew doesn't say it, I don't think here, does he? He doesn't say it, but he, he ascends into heaven after this, right? And sits at the right hand of the Father, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. So he's, these are his last instructions, and they don't flesh things out. But of course, you kind of stop and you realize, oh yeah, it is at the end of a 28, what we have is a 28-chapter book. <laughs> and a huge part of fleshing it out is thinking backwards as a way of moving forwards. Um, especially as they look, as you look back, you know, you have all of these examples of how Jesus, how he went, how he was going and bringing disciples along the way. How did he do that? What do you notice in all of those stories in the Gospel of Matthew? And at one point, there's almost like uh, a very similar interaction to this, this final commission there's a similar one in chapter 10 where he sends his disciples out. So it's sort of a trial run and he gives them authority. So there's the same kind of language of authority and going out and sending. And so in many ways, the, these disciples hearing this command, they would automatically think back. They would automatically dial back to what, well, what does going look like according to Jesus and think back to the legacy that he led I think we would all do well if you're, you know, if you're looking for an assignment this week and you've, you know, you, as the old saying goes, there's dust on your Bible at home and you need an assignment. Um, spend a chunk of time, one of those precious chunks of time, I don't know, an hour or two this week and just go back through Matthew and read 10 or 15 chapters straight in one sitting. It's a powerful exercise to do, to understand Jesus better and to know... And what do you notice? What will you see? I guarantee you what one of the things you'll see is that Jesus is just walking most of the time. He travels by foot. Some of you Bible nerds will say, and also by boat. Correct, yes. Also by boat, but mostly by foot. And he's just walking along. And what happens when you walk along? Well, I mean, I was riding my bike to meet uh, someone this week, and my, I got a flat tire, you know, and it was this... I still had like almost a mile to go, and so here I am. I mean, that's a, that's a dramatic deceleration. You know, you're going along, and all of a sudden you're like, 
I'm walking now. <laughs> I'm walking and I have to walk slow because this tire is totally flat. And I don't want to wreck my bike. But it's just, just suddenly you're just slow down. <laughs> Decelerate. And, and what happens? But all of a sudden I'm walking along, and I don't think I've ever had this before. I'm walking along, I'm noticing the houses, looking around, noticing the occasional person. And I see someone working at their kitchen sink through a window, and he looks up and sees me, and he waves at me. <laughs> When's the last time that, that happened? I don't know to any of you. But, but the, I, and I just thought, wow. How different is life when you do slow down, when you do walk? And what you'll see with Jesus, if you do read back and, and see how he's walking along, is that he's constantly interacting with and seeing and talking to and being confronted with people, with people. I think sometimes in our going in our lives, not only are they fast-paced, but we forget that it's all about people. And in some ways, if you're trying to understand what it means to go with Jesus and somehow live in the way he calls his disciples to live, it's easy to forget. It's all about people and the people that are brought into your life. There might be some slowing you need to do. I know I do. I mean, that was one example, but I need to listen to this big time. Slow down see the people around you and what is it what's the kind of the next thing that flows out of that if you're looking at Jesus's legacy it's almost always a confrontation with people's difficulty and i don't mean like a negative confrontation i just mean that people's difficulty becomes a part of that conversation that's what so many of Jesus's interactions are not people who have all their li- their lives all together and they're talking about the weather but about the just ordinary, ordinary troubles that this mission is about going into the midst of. And in many ways, being a Christian because of the legacy of Jesus, because of what he did and how he lived and how his life ended in the redemptive act of going into the world's difficulty to carry it on his shoulders so that we wouldn't be stuck with it. That legacy means basically that if you're a Christian you have a transformed view of difficulty itself. That you actually see the difficulty if you've really got this view and you start to get a little bit excited because this is where God likes to work. This is where God shows up. This is where Jesus' people get it. <laughs> Bringing the grace and the love and the welcome of God and his son Jesus into the thick of our troubles. So you've got Jesus' legacy to shape. Shape what it means to go. And you also have his authority. Because Jesus stands here, uh, he stands here giving them this great commission and this mandate and this simple mission statement, these verbs, you know, these action verbs, go, make disciples, tell, teach. And he gives that having just conquered evil on the cross, and risen from the dead in victory. He has authority. And an interesting thing happens in this chapter, I don't know if you noticed it, but two times it mentions people worshiping him. And he doesn't stop them. He doesn't complain about it or redirect them to a more appropriate way of interacting with him. And that's something that, uh, in many ways, Christianity leaves itself very vulnerable to those exploring it because it's just right out there that Jesus 
says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He allows people to worship him. This is what who Jesus really is. This is what the church from the beginning has viewed as who Jesus really was. So either those things, either what he says is true, and either those people are right to be bowing down to a human, either they're right and he is the son of God, or they're wrong and he's crazy. The Christian faith makes itself very vulnerable on this point. And so as he has this, you know, as he has this authority and people are worshiping, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I think we have, we have in this a chance to, to see how that actually opens up our going, how that affects and influences how we go. Um, if you think about places you might go in your life where there is authority or there is someone with authority, you get pulled over uh, on the road there's an authority that comes to your, to your window, right, of the car. None of you I know have ever had this experience. But when you're in a place, or maybe you walk into a courtroom, maybe you're in a jury, or maybe you're on the other side of things. But in these kinds of places where there's an authority, we don't come with our orders or our ideas. We don't bring the orders. We come into these places wondering and expecting to find out, in a sense, what the orders are, what the marching orders are. What are the things that now need to be carried out? You know, when people leave the courtroom, they don't leave going, they don't leave having had their, all their things confirmed and they just walk out get, you know, carrying out from that courtroom what they have. They, no, the sentence is carried out that the judge or the jury gives, that the authority gives. A lot of those are negative examples, you know, getting pulled over or going into a courtroom. But I kind of want to flip that and say, basically, coming into the presence of God and going out in His authority is going with His orders, with His ideas, with His mission and not your own. One of the things that I really love in terms of the imagery of it, of, of going in and worshiping at the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament, um, usually on a Wednesday noontime Mass is when I'll go. One of the things I love about it, I don't really know any of the people there. So it's an anonymous worship experience in a sense. But I look around and there's so much bowing in the Catholic Church. There's so much physical prostration and subjugation before the crucifix, before you know, the, the elements up front, and so there's often, you know, before you go down your row, there's kneeling, crossing yourself. And then when people come forward to communion, there's all these people from all different walks of life, all different ethnicities and races. And they get up, they all stand up and they walk to the front. And before they get to the front, they might walk down an aisle like this. And some, some of you are Catholic in your background, and so you do that here as well, which is really a cool thing that we have. And before they come to the person uh, giving them communion, they'll bow either like this or all the way down to their knee. And I really like that because it um, speaks into some powerful imagery for me that all of us from all these different walks of life, I don't even know these people, we are all standing up and moving forward as servants of the king 
There's even a chair in the in mass at, at the cathedral called the cathedra, and it's like a throne chair. So there's a sense of coming before the king as servants to get not only this the miraculous, incredible welcome of the king that's thoroughly unexpected. You, you know, you're welcome to come forward. You're all welcome, you're all accepted. But then we all turn and go out. And when we go out those doors, we're going, in a sense, having received, again, the marching orders, the sending orders. There's a radical welcome of the king, but there's also the, the sending. And we're all going out in different ways to go out into this world and obey these last words of Jesus. I love that imagery. And, um, and so what I do is when I go forward, I, I enter into all of those things and I do the bowing and I, I, I let the imagery play out in my mind of what this all means. I am going before the king. I am a servant so beloved. I picture the king smiling at me. A lot of just light laughter and joy that I've come forward. And then sort of a... a you know, a parental kind of nudge out with some of that laughter. All right, now go. I'll see you again next week. Go. Go out. The king has authority and there's a reign. There's a, a reign and a, a reigning of God's kingdom. And we are servants sent out to carry out the blessing. Um... And quite frankly, you look at the newspaper and you say, you know, as I leave the church doors sent out as his servant, I'm immediately confronted with a hundred reasons to believe he's not in charge and he's not reigning very effectively. You know, open up the newspaper. And yet that's exactly um, why we need, we need to constantly be speaking in with resurrection hope into what kind of phase of life we're in in the Christian church and in our mission, like... Um, N.T. Wright says it this way, God's new world has begun, therefore we've got a job to do and God's spirit to help us do it. That job is to plant the flags of resurrection in amongst the tired slogans of idolatrous modernity and destructive postmodernity. Basically, to plant flags of Easter in a Good Friday world. That's some of what it means to go. Go with the, the legacy of Jesus and to go in the authority of Jesus. You might need, today you might be sitting here and the thing you really need to know is you need the welcome, the radical welcome of the king. You might be on that end of the spectrum where you're just grappling with the fact that it just might be true that God's welcome really is that true for you. And you need to hear it over and over again that you are acceptable and you're welcomed in through the work of Jesus on the cross. But whether you're there or in a place maybe further along that's an older message for you, it's been there for a long time, either way, at some point you're going to keep getting incorporated into the sending of the king. What does that look like for you this week? What does that look for you in this next phase of life? It's an exercise in creativity for all of us. What does it look like for uh, a stay-at-home parent with little kids? It's going to be a particular kind of going. 
What does it look like for someone just starting out their career, loaded in a huge amount of debt from schooling, in a job with a steep learning curve? What does it look like if, as it's been said, you've, been, you've climbed the ladder and you've reached the top, only to realize you had it leaned up against the wrong wall? You know, maybe you're further along in your journey and there's a big redirection happening. What does going look like for you? What does it look like for you if you're single and there's hopes and dreams still that haven't become realized and you've got a lot of bitterness? What does it look like to go? I can guarantee you that it involves going not alone, but together. That we need each other and that we need this great promise. And we'll just end with this, the promise at the very end of the passage. What is the the promise that fuels our going and that encourages and emboldens us in our going and being sent, I am with you always. God is with you in your going. God is with you in your going. Jesus is with us in our going. Let's pray. God of grace, as we come into worship and hear these words, We're just like those who came and saw you in your resurrected body because some worshipped and some doubted. (laughs) And that is a perfect picture of every Sunday morning at City Life Church. We come and we, we worship interspersed and intermingled with all of our doubts, all of our questions. We ask that you would uh, embolden our call and our sending. Would you help us to enter in deeply to the exercise of answering the question, what does it look like for us to go? To be a part of making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does that look like for us? Help us as we journey in that together. In Jesus' name, amen.